Welcome to EJB Talks, Rutgers Blaustein School Experts in Policy, Planning, and Health, where we talk with our faculty and staff experts, as well as students, about how the fields of public policy, urban planning, public health, health administration, and public and urban informatics affect your lives. Welcome to another episode of EJB Talks. I'm Stuart Shapiro, the Associate Dean of Faculty at the Blaustein School, and the purpose of this podcast is to talk with my colleagues about issues affecting people in New Jersey, the United States, and the world. Over the past couple of weeks, we've discussed the health crisis and the economic crisis uh, that COVID-19 has wrought. Today, we start to look at some of the other societal implications of both of these crises. I'm very happy to be talking to my colleague, Professor Tony Nellison, who teaches in our highly ranked urban planning program. Welcome, Tony. Great to be here, Stu. Tony, can you tell us a bit about your background in urban design? Sure. Um, I, my career as an urban designer started really in my uh, sixth year of, uh, of architectural training when I got exposed to not doing single buildings for multiple years, but uh, uh, actually doing a redevelopment of a neighborhood. And that really turned me on to the whole idea that, you know, this was more than just a single building. And this was a new profession that was emerging called urban design. Then I worked for Victor Gruen for a while and worked with projects in Tehran, the plan for Tehran, a number of new towns, uh, downtown Hawaii, uh, Kansas City. And it was really multiple sets of buildings and transportation issues combined. And my career has just been like that from there uh, to Harvard and then from Harvard to working with a number of other national organizations, uh, multiple new towns, and then uh, returning to, uh, to private practice of my own, uh, developing uh, multiple new towns in the United States. And I can't tell you how many redevelopment plans. So. Uh, since my early years, uh, I have been what has been called an urban designer and was one of the few people to go to Harvard under the urban design program, uh, which really began at that point to hone my skills. Uh, and later, after teaching in Harvard, I came to Rutgers and uh, have been teaching urban design there now for, what, 42, 43 years. Great. Um COVID-19 has hit hardest in our cities, New York City in particular, also New Orleans, Detroit. Are you concerned that as a result of this, people are going to start thinking they shouldn't be living in cities? And once again, we might see a wave of movement out of cities? I think that's going to be inevitable for the next couple of years. Uh, it's clear to me, given my circumstance with my uh, son and daughter-in-law, you know, living here now, uh, coming out of Manhattan, that there is a certain, and, and discussion with other folks, that, that there's a certain fear of, of things like elevators, uh, congregating right. halls, narrow hallways, and a lot of people have escaped, but unfortunately, many people cannot. Uh, right. Now, I think over a short period of time, there will be some of this movement, but I really think that once it begins to, um, you know, if we if we beat the curve and we get the 14, 15, 20 days or so of, of, of a decrease, um, I think it's pretty clear to me that because of the resources that the cities have, people are going to move back. Uh, there's just too many resources deposited now inside these cities, culturally, socially, economically, physically, uh, interactively, 
that people inevitably who are you know congregating kind of people uh, will move back. But I think it's going to be a, a relatively slow progression back. And I mm -hmm. think it may take as many as, you know, two, maybe three years. Right, right. So we may see a little movement at first, but hopefully that'll reverse itself once the pandemic's a thing of the past. Yeah, I think like, for instance, I mean, if people are still um, living someplace else, let's say my, my son and daughter-in-law living with us, they're still paying rent in, in Harlem. They're, 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 everything is still there. And, you know, we've had multiple discussions that said, you know, why don't you just stay here, you know, or, or, or buy a place or rent a place here? No, 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 no. They want to go back. So I think people who are really urban people um, really have a kind of propensity to want to live in these urban areas. And their jobs are there. Their friends are there. The grocery store is there. They, 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 they know the system. Now, that will not be for all people. Some people will inevitably say, listen, I, I've had it, but there's been immigration both in and out migration from cities now for years, depending upon economic conditions and what have you. And this one has a tendency to have hit the cities and the high density areas um, certainly harder than most. Right. Now, one of the other big changes that we've seen in the past couple months has been the cratering of gas prices. Um, some of that's demand driven. We're not driving right now because we can't leave our houses. Um, some of it is supply side driven. What, what do you think the implications are for people's choices about how to live their lives? Heretofore, if you were a city dweller, you might have had a car, but you were primarily a walker or a transit user. I mean, the higher the densities, the greater the use of the of, of public transit. That, that's worldwide, uh, no question about that. But now that gasoline is now, or oil, let's say not gasoline, because gasoline is still dollar eighty-five, you know, maybe two dollars a gallon. Uh, but oil is has has fluctuated now. Uh, you know, the, the the fear is going to be uh, two fears. One is that once this is over. Uh, slowly over over the next uh, two years or so, and we have this phenomenal surplus now of, of oil sitting in tankers in the middle of yep. you know, every major harbor. That there is going to be a tendency. Wow, gas is really cheap. You know, we can kind of go back to what we what we had. But the question is, will there be places for people to go other than the places that they are going to now, like the right. drug store and what have you? How many restaurants and what have you are going to be uh, open? How many McDonald's on the end of the highways are actually going to actually open or go back to business as usual? I, I, I think, Stuart, we're going to see a, a, a major decline in the use of the cars, or maybe that's optimistic on my part, but mm -hmm. I just don't see that for the next couple of years because what are you going to go to that you're not going to now? And what is really fascinating is, is, is how people have begun to cope uh, without their cars over right. the last five or six weeks. It is just, I mean, it's like an urban designer's dream come true. <laughs> uh -huh. you know, all, all of a sudden, people are walking, they're bicycling, they're, 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 they're still making it to the, the supermarket, but that delivery has just been extraordinary. I mean, right. we get anything from baby diapers to, you know, to avocados delivered now. It, 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 you know, there's, there's hardly a reason to go... It's hardly the reason to go out. You just simply have to order it, and you know it arrives, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours later on your front porch. So this adaption process that the 
uh, work at this or the longer it's there, the more they're going to become used to it and assuming that it is just, you know, that's normal. It's normative. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, you mentioned, you know, we, we're driving to supermarkets. Many of us aren't even doing that. Like you said, we're ordering stuff and maybe that just becomes a permanent change. Maybe that's how we get our groceries from now on. It's not just getting the groceries. It's like you, you can have your prescriptions delivered. You know, you, you can have yeah. anything now delivered. But, you know, that was a trend. I mean, it's so interesting that the trend, the retail trend was changing so radically before this virus happened, and now this virus has happened, it has taken this industry and propelled it to stardom. I mean, it's just remarkable right. how efficient it has become, but it had a start. It was like a child walking. You had the child, the child was walking, was starting to uh, to, to move at a rapid pace. Now it's, on a, now it's on a bicycle. You know, it's like, wow, it's so fantastic to see what happened. And I kind of wonder if people get so used to you know, living at home, walking at home, having the stuff delivered, you know, how many of them will go back for those kind of normative uh, kind of things, go to the restaurant, what have you. I, but on the other hand, the same thing with work. I mean, the majority yeah. of the commute time is to commute back and forth, whether it's to Manhattan or me to back to school. Uh, you know, we just got used to driving our cars back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Now, you know, it, it's really been very, a, a tremendously interesting learning experience having to do your courses online, having to yep. interact with students. It has just been quite remarkable, actually. So I, I don't think it's ever going to go back to the normative town. In fact, Stuart, which is really interesting, from Princeton back, and I usually drive uh, back and forth, I've got more free time than I've ever, certainly than I've ever had before. And, and, right. And, and also, there's things that you can begin to do with that time you have just you've generated, you, you, you now have that you didn't have before. I mean, it's really fascinating as to what's going on. I mean, it's just extraordinary from an urban design uh, and a kind of urbanism perspective. Yeah, and work, you know, picking up on your uh, your comment on work there, um, employers are going to figure out, you know, maybe I don't need this big facility anymore. I can have my people work at home 80% of the time or 90% of the time, whether it's a university like Rutgers or something else that provides service. Now, some places, obviously, you need a physical plant for, but you might not, uh, you might see step changes in the way uh, work uh, changes, and that'll change in the way people live as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that, and that, and that's really but fascinating. But that then also has implications that says, and I've talked to several kind of a, of, of my designer uh, friends that are running, still running kind of big offices, and they're saying the big thing that is going to change is that uh, new housing that will be done or retrofitting older housing uh, is going to have to have a live work uh, studio space inside, built inside in lieu of the den or the extra bedroom. That's going to become a mandatory part of all new um, planning for housing. Of that, there's no doubt now. There's no doubt about that. Right, so that that's one big change we might see. What other changes in design generally and urban design in particular do you think we will see after the pandemic passes? I think that there's going to be a greater emphasis on what I will call the walk-up. I think that the, the, the walk-up is going to become a, a, a much more of a pervasive element uh, to, to, because of two things. One, 
is um, well, let, let, let me, let's back up. You remember when the elevators were on at Blasi and we all had to walk up five flights of stairs? <laughs> right. And we all did it, right? I mean, yeah. we complained a little bit, but we all did it. You met people on the hallway, you know, and it, it was, you know, probably healthier for all of us. Um, mm -hmm. But nonetheless, the question is, if you can introduce, uh, which uh, I know people have in Europe, introduce um, a walk-up, but the caveat is a dumbwaiter. A dumbwaiter mm -hmm. means that you, you bring your case of beer or your groceries, you set it on the dumbwaiter, it goes up, right? You don't have to carry it up. It's all you have to carry up is yourself. So right. that might be one of the things that a much more emphasis upon uh, walk-up units and unit configurations differently. But I also think that there's going to be a very much of a difference in parking ratios. I think parking ratios are going to start to go down because of this. There's no need to have to park that many cars. I think that's going to be very important. And I also think that there may be um, the question of designing new high-rise buildings very differently than they were before. Um, I, I, I really think that we're going to be thinking about high-rise buildings in a very, very different way, perhaps even limiting their height or else it, breaking them down in increments of five stories so you can walk up and down five stories within a high-rise building. So those are things that we're starting to think about as ways in which we can begin to do it. But I also think that because uh, human beings are such social congregate animals and have been since the beginning of time, that there's going to have to be ways in which you can leave your home and be on a, a, a very positive, um, what I will call urban walking experience. And I think we really need to rethink now that walking urban experience. And to me, it's really interesting because, for instance, if I take my bike out now, which I've been doing a lot and filming in, in, in the little town that I live in, to what these streets are, it's like a bicycle's paradise. There's no parking. Mm -hmm. I mean, all those, all the parallel parking is gone. Um, and so all of a sudden, the bicycle has free reign. People are walking in the middle of streets. And I, and I think based on the number of things that have been done in other cities now, where they're starting to think about widening sidewalks, A, for social distance, what have you, but completely closing off more and more and more streets. Right, wow. That places like Manhattan, Boston, and what have you, will start to take entire shopping streets in order to get the social distances and say, listen, for the next two years, we're just going to close these streets off. We're going to close these streets off. And after the end of two years, people are going, we're not going to put the cars back on here. Are you kidding me? We love it the way it is. So these are all things that are starting to think about uh, changes that are occurring. And again, this is not new. It's just that this, this virus has just accelerated the process. So let's say in New Jersey, there, you know, Jersey City has got places where they close streets off, off of pedestrian. Somerville has it. There's a whole number of cities that don't have it. But this, like everything else, it's just accelerated the whole thing. Also, they're going, wow, Witherspoon Street has no cars on it. Why don't we just close Witherspoon Street off completely forever and, you know, put little green spaces and coffee. You see what I mean? The whole yeah. idea there is that this may give us two years to rethink it. Now, it's not going to happen everywhere, but those places that have been more prone to walking and more mixed use, I think are going to thrive. I mean, I think those are the cities that are really going to thrive. Then there's the thing of mixed use, that the idea that 
the old zoning kind of put everything in its place. So you had retail here and you had housing there and you had higher density housing there, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that's also gonna go by the wayside. I think people are going to say, why can't I have a daycare facility in my building? Why can't I right. have, see what I mean? So again, there has been a tendency to move in that direction, but this has just accelerated it. Uh, this, you know, why can't I have a supermarket, a small little supermarket for my local stuff within walking distance? Why can't I have that? And so I think there will be some of that pressure as well. So uh, to me, it's really an exciting time to rethink the program. That's that's great. That's fascinating stuff that I bet a lot of people haven't thought of yet. Um, looking backward and forward with regards to sort of preparation for things like COVID-19, what, what could cities have done better? Or what should they do better to minimize the number of people that uh, are infected in the future? I, I, that's, you know, the most interesting question about that, and it depends upon which side of this of this debate one is on or the political debate one is on. I really, honestly, Stuart, think that the whole key was testing in the first place. And, yeah. and I think that the, 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 the places clearly demonstrated that those places that have had the best results are the places that tested uh, more often and uh, tested more thoroughly with a larger group of population. And then we're able to isolate those folks really early on in the game. And I, I find it interesting because you think about, uh, you know, where it, you know, clearly it came from China and clearly the whole idea that, that, you know, we stopped the flight from China. And of course that, you know, 40,000 people from China still came in, but if people come from China, they don't go to any, they don't fly to Indianapolis. They fly to, to the major airports in the major cities. So it's just logical. And then they get into a taxi or whatever they do. And it's just logical. That 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 if if it was spread by air, which they think it was, then mm-hmm. wherever you had these major congregating points or wherever people landed, that's what we should have tested. The airports should become a major testing facility. I mean, major uh, testing facility. I mean, it's like okay, we we scan people for guns, right? Really? You know, how many how many, <laughs> how many times have you gone through? Uh, an airport checkpoint with thousands of people, and I've gone it worldwide, and I've never seen anybody caught, anybody ever. Right. Why couldn't you at the same time check everybody that comes in? Temperature, scans, uh, viruses, the whole thing. There's got to be technology. There is technology to do that. So I, that would be my first notion is you absolutely drilled out. Now, in the United States, it may be too late. I mean, we, we, the, 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 in the Wisconsin vernacular, you know, the cows are out of the barn. You know, they're, 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 right. now the question really is, how in the world do you test 300 million people in the United States and maybe six or seven billion in the world? I mean, how do you do that? And, and, and they're a bit extremely slow at <clears throat> doing that, although more of these testing facilities are starting to be, <clears throat> excuse me, are starting to be uh, put in place, including a new one in Harlem as of yesterday or the day before. It's in Harlem, my God, that's the highest density place. Now, also the pundits begin to say, well, you know, there's nothing happening in Montana or there's nothing happening in Iowa or nothing happening. Well, dudes, the density there is like one person for every five square miles in New Jersey. It's the highest density in the United States. It's about density. It's not about the number of people and the size of of the place. And so density is the key factor 
that has to be controlled in this map that we create. You've got high density, that's where you have the highest amount of testing that has to be done. And okay, so Mantana, you know, it's got a few cases out there. I fully understand that, but they have no density except in buildings in a few other major cities. I mean, right. and even then those cities, because they're so sprawled, don't have many people living in them. Right, yeah, where those places are seeing problems or where they have a big factory and someone has gotten infected, like the uh, the pork plant in South Dakota and, uh, and other meat facilities, there you see sort of artificial density, if you will, work density rather than, than living density. And that, that's where you've seen spreads in the, in the more rural areas. Um, let, me, let me wrap up by just sort of letting you go on, uh, on whatever else you want to talk about in terms of the implications for urban design and design in the wake of this pandemic. Anything you haven't covered yet that you'd like to, like to get in there? Yeah, I, 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 there's a couple of things that I think are that 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 I'm really, really, really excited about is that is, you know, we have this really extraordinary school, um, you know, third best school in the, in the country. And we're one of the few schools who also has a major health component built into the school itself. Um, and I think that the, the, the kind of the, the focus of the combination of health and urban design to me is like is like. Like, like, it just couldn't be better. I mean, I came to New Jersey because I wanted to study sprawl from Harvard. Well, you know, boy, did that turn out to be fantastic, right? Uh, and, 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 and we developed some really good solutions. Now, the thing would be interesting is to see the manifestation of this physical response and a health response in, in all our studios in, in, so that we as a school would become a kind of focus to say, okay, Here's a kind of a new urban design with this health bent to it that will indeed train students in the future. Because I know that I've interviewed a number of students already who are, are really concerned, and, and I'll guarantee you that next year, the Healthy Cities class, 95% of those kids are going to be interested in, in how we do it, how we build it, and what the future starts to look like uh, relative to what we're going through now. And I think if we take all of the issues that we talked about, the trends that we're starting and now are being magnified. I, I, I think this is an opportunity, uh, which is really pretty, pretty extraordinary. Yeah, Healthy Cities has a has a meaning and an appeal that it didn't have two months ago. And in a, a lot more people are going to be interested in thinking about questions to what do we do to keep our cities healthy and use our cities to promote health um, that didn't ever think they were interested in those questions. I, 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 I know, and already the Healthy Cities class has already got, you know, 85, you know, 80, 85 <laughs> students in it, and I assume we'll see what happens with next semester, but however that goes, the, the focusing on the design work, the physical containment that people live in, and the future direction that people may want to go in the future to feel uh, safe, because um, I think it is as much of psychology as it is marketing. And maybe marketing psychology are the same thing at this point. But the fact that they're going to be looking for solutions where they feel safe. Uh, and then the big serious question is, is, you know, can we make it through the next two years without people getting, you know, really, really angry because we're not moving fast enough? I, that, right. That's a big concern of mine, that people right. are already starting to carry guns. Yeah. That's, that's scary stuff, and there are definitely some scary scenarios here, too. 
Um, well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Nellison, for, for speaking with us this morning. It was a, a great discussion. You raised a lot of things I hadn't thought of, and I, I think our listeners will really, uh, really appreciate it. You asked some great questions, and uh, you only get good answers if you got great questions, and I thank you and for doing this, just to, to reach out. It's really good. Thanks so much, Tony. Also, I'd like to give a big thank you to our production team, Tamara Swedberg, Amy Cobb, and Karen Olson. We'll be back next week. Um, we're going to be talking about transportation uh, implications of the COVID-19 crisis with Professor Bob Noland. Um, until then, stay safe, and we'll talk to you then. Thank you.